We're continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and this week we're in the middle of John chapter 6. Um, and to set this up a little bit, so <clears throat> uh, in our passage two weeks ago, Jesus has fed the 5,000 people who had gathered around him miraculously. He's done this incredible act of, uh, of power, this miracle. Um, and in the aftermath of that, the people who had gathered to hear him who then saw him turn five small loaves and two small fish into abundance for everyone to eat, they get very excited about Jesus. <laughs> and so uh, it says actually in verses 14 and 15, which are printed for us in our bulletin, that they got so excited that they decided that they were going to make Jesus king by force. Um, which is an interesting thing to make someone king by force, but they were going to try to grab Jesus and say, you are, whoever you are, we're about it. You are our king. We're going to make you king by force. And Jesus retreats in the midst of that. When our passage here today, the crowd catches up to him. The crowd finds Jesus. The last thing we know about them, they were going to try to make Jesus king by force. And so this picks up in their interaction with Jesus uh, just a few days later. So um, it's printed for you in your bulletin or you have your Bible in front of you. We'll be starting at verse 26 and going through verse 58. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Jesus answered this crowd, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who is giving you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do the, my will, but do, to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. 
His bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us flesh, his flesh, to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate men and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words as challenging as, as, as uh, hard. As uh, odd as they may hit our ears, we thank you for them because in them is a revelation of who you are and what you're about and an invitation to us to see who we are in you and what we are to be about. So I pray in this moment, by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and love him all the more. I pray all this in his name. So, uh, back on May 17, 1966, Bob Dylan was on tour in England. I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, so pardon the story. Um, but Dylan's on tour in England. He's supporting his latest album that just came out the previous week. But the crowd in England there gets a Bob Dylan that they didn't expect or really want. So up until this point, Bob Dylan had been out and a popular kind of singer for about four years. And he had made his name in coffee shops at first with an acoustic guitar and harmonica. That's who he was. He had his, his grating Bob Dylan voice, he had his harmonica, and he has an, has an acoustic guitar. Well, this tour, he's got a band with him. And the crowd who comes to see him, they're not just taken aback, they're offended. They're angry. Because what they want is the Bob Dylan that they know from before. The Bob Dylan who sings these quiet, but profound protest songs challenge them with the poetry, the words that they can clearly hear because it's just an acoustic guitar. But who they have in front of them is Bob Dylan with a backing band, a very loud backing band. In fact, uh, this piece of musical trivia, the band that he was on tour with eventually became the band. Uh, later on, the band with the way a bunch of They had their own fantastic career. But anyway, Bob Dylan's performing, and the crowd's very angry. They don't like it at all. In fact, they begin to mock him in between songs. Or in uh, times in the song when the drums aren't playing, the crowd begins to clap off beat because they want the drummer to get confused and discombobulated. And this antagonism, there's actually recordings of this. It's kind of wild to see, but there's this back and forth, this antagonism that happens. The crowd gets more and more angry, and the band gets louder and louder. <laughs> And it's time for the last song, Bob Dylan's talking. And then out from the crowd, one of the people yelled, Judas! Judas. Which, you know, not in the room, that seems wild, because he's got an electric guitar and they call him Judas. But they, they, they claim that he's a betrayer of their cause, because he went from quiet protest songs that were contemplative to rocking out the theme. Judas. Bob Dylan responds in the moment. He says, I don't believe you. You're a liar. And he turns around to the band and he says, play it loud. 
and they kick into their final song like a rolling stone. And it starts with the snare, the drummer hits the snare, and they kick off, and it's this raucous version. Anyway, afterwards, there were cameras there recording it because at this point, Bob Dylan was kind of a big deal. And they interviewed people afterward. And one of the people they interviewed said this. One audience member would say, it was like everything that we held dear had been betrayed. We made him, and he betrayed the cause. We made him, and he betrayed the cause. Why? Because they loved their idea of Bob Dylan. They loved the thought of their Bob Dylan. They played the songs that they just liked. They didn't want to challenge them. But when the actual Bob Dylan is right in front of them, of course, so I think this serves as a warning for us, a warning of the dangers that Christians face when we're encountering the actual Jesus. But it's also an invitation, not just a warning. It's an invitation to stare into the beauty of Jesus, the actual Jesus and his baffling grace, and not turn away, but to race to him to receive his grace. Now I want to focus on two specific warnings and two specific invitations this morning. So the first one is this, the first warning. Beware of the impulse to create a Jesus in our own image. Beware of the impulse to create a Jesus in our own image. If you asked the crowd that day, they would have said, we're big fans of Jesus. They wouldn't have said, we are showing up to reject him. We're showing up to tell him we don't like what he's about. No, absolutely not. The passage opens with them literally chasing him. They've assembled as a crowd to make him king by force. They they, they, they chase him over dozens and dozens and dozens of miles to the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. They call him a prophet and a rabbi, which means teacher. These folks are big fans. The great irony here, however, is even though they wanted to make him king by force, when he told them what his kingdom was about, they said no. When he tells them what it means to receive him, as he says, to believe in the one that God has sent, they misunderstand what his kingdom is. They call him rabbi, but they reject his teaching. They call him prophet, but they refuse to listen to his voice. And when he begins to speak of the power that's stronger than death, an eternal life, when he begins to speak about raising them up on the last day, they only want to talk about this idea of an idealized past. Notice the number of times in this passage that Jesus says, and I will raise them up on the last day. He's pointing to the future, what he's going to do, the trajectory of God's redemption that had begun in pictures and shadows in the Old Testament, the leadership under Moses that they keep pointing back to. Jesus is saying, you're looking back in an idealized past, but God is doing what that only pointed to in me. But they want to keep talking about that idealized past. When their ancestors were under the ministry of Moses. In other words, they like the idea of Jesus, but when Jesus is standing right in front of them, they'd rather have the fiction of their own desires than the reality of God's grace that's coming. Now, before we look down on them, this is a reality. This is a danger for Christians in the 21st century as well. Think about it. Christians will often claim a love for Jesus, but will use that as a justification to mistreat people we don't like. Christians will say they're standing up for righteousness while openly mocking uh, communities they don't agree with. People whose lifestyles they don't like. They'll use justification, the idea of Jesus, to call mocking names. I mean, even think about, not to 
get unduly political, but you know, January 6th, the crowd rushing into the, uh, the, the Capitol building. What's the first thing folks did when they got into the Senate floor? They had a prayer in the name of Jesus. There's videos of it. They busted down the doors and windows, and the first thing they did was stop and say a prayer in the name of Jesus. They thought that they had to rubber stand for what they had just done. I could go on naming examples, but it's a very real danger. Not just for people I'm naming, but for us. That we create an idea of Jesus that we like better than the real Jesus. And when we become baffled by the real Jesus, we run to the arms of our religious fiction. A Jesus who doesn't challenge us, but only rubber stamps what we want anyway. But like I've said, that's the danger. But there's also an invitation. The invitation is this. To see who Jesus shows himself to be. And to be baffled by that grace. And to rest in it. Friends, we cannot harness Jesus for our own purposes. Everybody who has ever tried has found themselves incredibly frustrated because he will not be harnessed to be used as a tool for people's purposes. But we can catch a glimpse of the magnitude of his love, the deep sea of his compassion and cling to him by faith. We can, as he said, do the work of God. Verse 29, he says, the work of God is to believe in the one that the Father has sent. Not to believe in the Jesus of our imagination, but in the Jesus who shows us who God is. Not a false God that will ask us to jump through hoops, but the Jesus who gives his life for us. As he says in verse 27, he gives us the food that endures to eternal life. The Jesus who gives his life for us. The Jesus who takes our place. Who guts sin of its power in his death and in turn gives us forgiveness and in his resurrection gives us a hope that cannot be shaken by anything in this world because it rests on him and not on us. The Jesus who invites us to find our all in him, to build who we are and how we think about the world on the foundation of who he is. The invitation for us in this passage is not to try to make the faith. Jesus of our own imagination, a king by force, but it's an invitation to call the real Jesus king and to live under his reign, to call him rabbi and not reject his teaching, but obey what he says, to call him prophet and not turn our ears off, but to listen to his voice, to call him our God and to receive his grace. So the danger, the first danger is to create a Jesus in our own image and the invitation is to see him in all his beauty and grandeur and compassion and to rest on who he is. That brings me to my second danger, the second invitation. First, this is the second warning. Don't love the gift so much that you miss the giver. Don't love the gift so much that you miss the giver. Let me explain. In this passage, the crowd has chased Jesus down, but Jesus knows what they're after. He knows what they want from them and how that desire has blinded them to the greater gift that they're actually asking for. As Jesus says in verse 26, look at it. You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, so not because you've seen with clear eyes what God is doing through me, but because you ate the loaves and had your food. They've missed the giver for the gift. What he's saying is that they missed the greater significance of him feeding 5,000. Jesus could have done that every single day he was on earth. They saw it and they were amazed. But the reason they're chasing after him is because they think there's more of the same tomorrow. They keep talking about manna in the wilderness, which popped up every single day under Moses. And they're thinking, if we 
just keep chasing after this guy. We're going to keep getting fish and bread. And I don't want to undermine or, or downplay the reality of hunger, not by any means. But Jesus is telling them, you're chasing after me for this material thing. You're missing the significance that it points to. Jesus tells them here, it wasn't just a cool demonstration of his power. It's a sign. And what do signs do? They point. Signs indicate. Signs don't point at themselves. Imagine going to Orlando. You're going to go to Disney World. You take your turn off of Interstate 4. And you get to the gate and you get out of the car and you take a picture at the gate and then you turn around and go home. You missed it. <laughs> you made it to the sign. But you missed the point. The sign tells you you're here. Keep going. That's what Jesus is saying here. You guys really love this sign. And the sign's really great. It's cool. It's awesome that they ate and had their fill and there was an abundance left over. It shows the grace of who Jesus is. But Jesus is saying, don't stop there. Don't stop there, friends. This is a gate. This is a sign pointing to a deeper hunger that can be fulfilled with Jesus. The multiplying of the bread was a sign pointing to the God who nourishes in abundance of himself. The physical bread that they had eaten. The bread that seemed so insignificant but was multiplied to be enough to satisfy the hunger of all the people gathered there and then some was a pointer to Jesus who here calls himself the bread of life. The one who can give us true spiritual nourishment whose grace is sufficient, more than sufficient, and is never in danger of running out. That's the significance of the bread that was multiplied that day. Not just that Jesus could show you he could do something impressive physically in the miracle. The significance is Jesus is saying, you can be nourished on me. The God who abounds in being, abounds in love, abounds in grace. I never run dry. And I have come so that you and your soul might be nourished now and forever. Not just for an afternoon watch, but for forever. Yet they were concerned with receiving more of the physical what they had failed to do is trace their hunger to find an answer and satisfaction to Jesus because they were blinded to the deeper significance of who gave them the bread and what he actually had for them. In other words, they missed the giver for the gift. Now again, let's not look down on them. We can't. How often is this true of us? That we get so wrapped up in the idea of just fulfilling material desires. That we don't trace our desires to find their true fulfillment in Jesus. How often do we get so fixated on the gifts that we've been given or the things that we have and haven't used those gifts as tools to lead us to the God who satisfies our hearts? Because the truth is, every gift given by God, every single gift that we have given by Him is meant to be a sign that leads us to Him. And not just our gifts, not just the blessings, the things that we have. Our desires as human beings, our longings, our hungers are meant to be signs that come to Him, the one who can truly satisfy. Not just with a bread that will calm our appetite for a few hours, but with His sacrificial love that will never run out. So this leads me to the invitation, the danger, the warning is to not miss the giver for the gift. The invitation is this, to trace our desires to our Creator and to feed on the bread of to trace our desires to our Creator. The language that Jesus uses here is shocking. I hope you felt it when we were reading through it. Because he keeps saying it. And he, 
he kind of wish we had phrased it differently. He says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. It, it's, it's shocking, it's grotesque. And I think that's why the crowd responds the way it does. I think that's why early Christians were so misunderstood. So early Christians, um, they were often in danger. So they didn't have big public, like they didn't have social media, obviously. But they weren't putting signs up like, we're worshiping at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Come and join us. It happened, you know, that was maybe a dangerous thing. <laughs> Growth happened through interpersonal relationships. But the, but the fact that most Christian worship, worship services were closed off or in homes or in smaller places meant that a lot of misunderstandings happened in the very first uh, couple of centuries of the Christian church. And one of the uh, claims that people would say against Christians is that they were cannibals. Because they would hear Christians from time to time speak about eating the flesh, the body and blood of Jesus. They said, what are they doing? Unclosed doors. These folks are cannibals. Now, we're not cannibals, y'all. We're not. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm not leading you. No. Um, but, you know, that's one of the early uh, kind of rumors about them because they talk about feeding on the body and blood of Jesus in this shocking, grotesque language. But I think the shocking nature here, the reason Jesus is using this kind of shocking language, it points us to the shocking depths of Jesus' love for us. spoke about not missing the giver for the gift. The point that Jesus is making here is if you trace everything back, the gift is me. Not, not Tim, Jesus. Um, the gift is Jesus himself. He's not giving you a stand-in. He gives himself. It's a shocking depth of love. He gives his life for us. Not just words, not just platitudes. He doesn't just give us good advice about how to be good people. He gives his life. That we might not be those who are trapped in the cycle of our small desires and chasing after fulfilling these small desires. But He gives His life that we might be reconciled to God. The God who made us. The God who made us as people who desire and long for things and hunger for things. And the God whose love is big enough and real enough to satisfy the longings of our hearts. So, let's hear the invitation and not be afraid of the idea of being a desire. The path of Christian righteousness is not turning off your heart and becoming a stoic, closed off from feeling and just passing through. No, the invitation is for us to trace our longings to our Creator. Now, that doesn't mean everything we want is righteous. We go through the process of taking our desires again and again to Jesus to ask Him to purify us, to cleanse us, but the pathway forward is not turning our hearts off. It's not hiding our emotional life from God as if He is uncomfortable with it. It's bringing our hearts to Him time and time again. He made our hearts. So the invitation is to not be afraid of our longings, but also not to stop short and try to satisfy those longings with lesser things. The crowd needed bread. The crowd was hungry. They needed bread. And I don't want to downplay the reality of hunger. And that's not what Jesus is doing here. He plainly cares for their physical needs, right? Just a couple of days before, he had fed them. They didn't pay anything for that food. He cares for their physical needs. He proved that when he multiplied the bread and fish for them. But there's a hunger that runs deeper than just the body's need for nourishment. And that's a hunger that God doesn't ask us to 
turn off. No, that's a hunger. That deep hunger and longing is something that Jesus came to satisfy. Something that Jesus came to show us where to point that longing. Where to go with that longing in our hearts. Not to try to turn it off because we're going to fail at turning it off. There's so many stories and tragedies throughout history of people trying to suppress themselves and, and running into frustration and depression and all kinds of things. Jesus comes to tell us where to point our desires, where to point our longings. Human beings were made to be desiring creatures, to want, to long for things. We have hungers, drives within us. But all these longings and yearnings that are meant to lead us, they're not meant to lead us to things, but to God. St. Augustine, um, pastor who lived in the 5th century, he started his most famous work, Confessions, with this sentence, Our hearts remain for you, Lord, and they're restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts were made for you, Lord, and they're restless until they find their rest in you. When we go to satisfy our desires, we are looking for God. When we seek the admiration in others and popularity, we are looking for the affirmation we're meant to find in God. When we seek our security in money or guns or whatever, we're looking for that sense of security we were meant to find in God. When we're looking for romantic love that will last, love that will keep us from loneliness, we're looking for an unconditional love that only God can truly give. Now, I'm not telling you that it's wrong to achieve. It's like wrong to get good grades or advancing your career. I'm not telling you that it's a bad thing to get a security system at your house or have a retirement account. I'm not telling you that romance is a bad thing. But what I am saying is this. Our desires can be useful tools that lead us to the always sufficient grace of Jesus. That's what we're meant to be at their core. So let's hear the invitation today, friends, to not deny the reality of our desires, but to trace them to the God who made us. God who loves us, the God who can give us the rest that we're longing for, the God whose love is older than our sin, the God who is calling us right now, today, to Himself, to abandon the things that can never truly satisfy, and to throw all of our chips in on the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this shocking grace that you would send your Son. It wouldn't just come to pop into our existence and give us some truthful things to hear, some platitudes, and then pop back out. No, your eternal Son who took to himself a human nature to become one of us, to condescend to us that he might lift us up to who and to you, to who you are. And Jesus who has come to free us from the bounds of sin, free us from the punishment of sin. To free us unto you that we might find in you are all and all. We thank you for this. Impress upon our hearts that we might be people who trace every good gift that's given to us to you. And trace every desire in our heart to you. That we come back to you time and time again, the fountain of goodness that can fulfill our hearts. 